Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Craig Blomberg. Uh, Craig is is a guest this week. Um, we're going to be talking about greed. Uh, what is greed? Uh, how should we interact with 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 greed? Should we interact with greed? Um, and so, before we get, get into the, some of the deeper questions here, Craig, can you just tell everybody who you are and what you do? My uh, official, pompous sounding title is. Uh, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of New Testament, which means I'm retired, but still teaching this year, actually half time. I'm teaching three classes over the two major semesters and uh, still doing a lot of writing and traveling and podcasts. Mm, Nice. And where are you teaching? Denver Seminary. Denver Seminary. Burlington, Colorado. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So like I said before, in this podcast, we're going to focus on the topic of greed. I think obviously living in America, um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on making money and accumulating things throughout our life, whether that be homes, cars, or just random stuff, electronics, things like that. And so um, this this philosophy, this kind of materialistic philosophy has, I think, uh, made its way uh, into my generation in a very powerful way. I think a lot of younger people are very focused on how much money they can make and what they can do with their money. And it was interesting over the last month or two, my wife and I were reading through the book of James and we got to James chapter five and um, James chapter five starts out talking about money and uh, how people interact with money. And so I'm going to actually read the first couple verses in James 5, and then we'll kind of jump into this conversation. Um, but here, here's what it says. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming up- upon you. Your riches have rotted and your, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last, in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, so obviously you read that and you're like, this is incredibly intense. Um, and so, Craig, uh, I guess you want to kind of just give us a general idea. What, what exactly is James saying here? Well, James is writing uh, to a group of probably largely Jewish Christians um, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean world in the middle of the first century. And um, already by the 40s and 50s of the first century, um, a lot of land was being gobbled up by Roman and some Jewish landowners, uh, similar to what We have seen in some parts of the world today, not so much in our country, um, where uh, often absentee landlords would hire people, um, day workers. um, Today, we might call them migrant workers or immigrants um, for a minimum wage uh, to uh, farm their fields, to mow their lands, as you have the reference here. And um, not always uh, 
pay them uh, on time. And if you were um, somebody dependent on getting paid every day at the end of work uh, in order to buy food to feed yourself and your family, or perhaps for the next day, if uh, you had a, a wife at home who was already preparing the meal for that day, then obviously this this was a matter of health. This was a matter of, of great concern. And uh, it's it's a powerful metaphor. It's not that the the owners don't have the money. It says uh, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out. And and uh, one way to translate that is against you. Um, but the preposition there is more commonly um, more commonly means from you. And so. Mm-hmm. In class, uh, if I have a, an audience who can see me, I will sometimes uh, act this out by uh, pretending I hear a voice coming from my back pants pocket and it gets louder. And finally, I pull out my wallet and I realize that it's the, the money that's still in my wallet that doesn't belong there that's saying, you should have paid those people with me. Um and, and I hope that sort of drives it home. And then verse five, yeah, sounds like um, it's just a statement of an awful lot of North Americans and maybe some Western Europeans and East Asians. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. We have people dying all around us in wars and natural disasters and simply because they don't have enough money uh, Mm. to buy food or medicine. And uh, we go out to eat 10 times more than we need to, uh, the average person. And uh, boy, does that money uh, pile up in a hurry that could have been easily supporting a dozen children um, and making the difference between life and death for them. It's interesting. It seems like the way that you kind of just broke that down, that it seems like it's kind of talking about in some ways at the beginning, maybe obviously landowners or like business owners who aren't treating people fairly. And then that second half, it was kind of more uh, more general as to kind of just people who are very wealthy, like Europeans, Americans. Is that is that kind of an accurate breakdown? I think so. Um, You probably have what um, literary critics here call the device of apostrophe, which doesn't mean putting uh, a little squiggle before an S in a word, but it means addressing people who are not present as if they were. It's highly unlikely that um, the oppressive landlords are Uh, even believers, much less that they would be present in James' church. And he is still addressing in the the second person plural, you, you all. Um, So not directly indicting anybody in James' community, but to the extent that most um, Christian congregations within uh, 20 or 30 years of the beginning of Christianity had at least a small number of more well-to-do people. Mm -hmm. Um, If the shoe fits, (laughs) Mm -hmm. time to wear it. Right. And this is, this is kind of, I I suppose this leads into a question 
and I've had this conversation with with a couple people, even I mean, within the church. And oftentimes kind of a rebuttal that I hear to a verse like this as well. It is relative to what James is talking about, your your wealth relative to the people who are around you. And so, I mean, and this is an interesting topic because in America, right, we're the Americans as a whole are richer and more wealthy than 99% of everybody else in the world. And so that is that is true. Um, but to ca- compare it to each other, there's, there's, I mean, somebody could make a million dollars, somebody could make, you know, $15,000. So that's a huge difference. How, how are we supposed to read this verse as you know, the modern day American, um, is, is James just like, look, all of all, you know, all rich people need to be very, very careful. And there's no, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're not comparing yourself. It's just rich and poor. I guess, how are we supposed to read this? It's interesting. I, I did a little digging online because I've, I've traveled the world enough to see how, how it is increasing in prosperity. Um, there are some encouraging statistics um, in the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, we have gone from uh, having almost 2 billion people in the world below the United Nations poverty line down to 700 million, which is uh, a shrinkage of well over half, uh, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And that means that the better way to uh, phrase the statistic, uh, I liked the World Vision website that put it this way, the almost every American is more well-to-do than the average lifestyle of people in the rest of the world Hmm. there it may be that uh, you and i uh, um, are different from uh, the people in the slums of chicago and brooklyn and los angeles and Mm -hmm. uh, east st louis and other places Mm -hmm. Um, it wouldn't be fair to say that they're richer than 99 percent of the world it might only be 60 or 70 percent but still the point is taken that um we have to be uh, relative to our own context and thank goodness otherwise we would all be condemned immediately Hmm. um once i look at my own context then i have to say who am i looking at Mm -hmm. i live within walking distance of Douglas County, Colorado, which over the last decade, five years out of 10, has been one of the 10 wealthiest counties in the country. Wow. That means that my neighborhood um, is not typical. I don't have a home the size of most of those in Highlands Ranch. My home is only 1700 square feet on a quarter acre lot where you don't have to heat and cool it as much but you have to water it a lot if you want the lawn to be anything other than brown i still have to be very very careful if we invite international students over because they look at what i'm in and think i am just filthy rich that has has been a huge motivator to me to give uh, an awful lot of my annual income away uh, to 
perhaps in some way compensate for what is an amazingly comfortable lifestyle. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this seems like this is, this is a question. It's obviously a theological conversation discussing what greed is and what these verses mean. But ultimately, it seems like it comes down to a question of discernment and people kind of figuring out, okay, here's where I live, right? This is kind of the average lifestyle. How do I live you know, below that a little bit or something like that. But how do, how do people in good conscience actually judge that? Because I can see, you know, I know a bunch of people, even myself, who I get caught up in this having to, I, what do they say, like keep up with the Joneses? I don't know if that's like a, a saying, but they have to keep up with what everybody else yeah. is doing and buying and living in. And so uh, how, how can people grow in their discernment? Which I know this is more of a pastoral question, not necessarily a theological sure. question, but what do you think? Um, I mean, I have I have my um, vices. Uh, it's called buying books. Um, I have a library that lines my basement and that's after I gave a third of it away when I retired. Um, I hope, uh, that I live long enough, uh, that I can continue to gradually give it away. Um, but apart from that one area, which is very directly related to my professional responsibilities, um, I almost challenge myself to deliberately not keep up with the Joneses. Hmm. And that means I don't aspire to drive anything more than the very reliable third consecutive Toyota Camry. I've owned three cars since 1987. Hmm. Um, and it means that uh, I have... Uh, a Samsung Android that's four years old. And my daughter, who's a professional scientist, has one older still. And yet they do everything I need. Hmm. Maybe not every single thing I might want, but certainly everything I need. Hmm. Um, we probably eat out a little too much because usually if I'm eating out, it's with somebody who wants to meet with me. But the good news is, at least half the time, they'll pay for it. <laughs> um, I think discernment comes when you hear an appeal. When you hear a legitimate need, there's no question about somebody sensationalizing or it being, quote unquote, fake news. Um <laughs> the missionary your church supports, you've met them many times, you know they're trustworthy, describes you firsthand the results of the latest earthquake or natural disaster where they are and the need for significant amount of money soon. Is my first reaction? Yeah, that's legit. And I know I can help and I know I should help and I want to help. And the only question my wife and I should be talking about is how much hmm. or is my first reaction? Oh, golly, if I give to that, will I have enough for X, Y and Z? Hmm. That's about the only test you need to ask yourself 
to find out where your heart is. Yeah, no, that's good. I think one thing that I would always think of when I was a kid, um, as we would watch or, you know, read through The Hobbit, it was always interesting to me because it felt like Jared Tolkien was kind of, at, you know, with, uh, was it Thorin at the end of The Hobbit? He becomes incredibly greedy. And uh, I was always like, okay, I, I can see this. But I was like, you know, I feel like if like men's sin is is sexual sin like why wouldn't he make this about sexual sin like rather than greed like i mean greed is whatever but we didn't grow up with a lot of money well as i've grown up and i've looked around and seen what 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 money has done to me and to people around me who i just had a lot of respect for and then who fell in love with money it's like i can see now why money is is that was kind of greed was the point that he was trying to make that this is greed does this thing to men's hearts what what exactly is it about greed and especially greed for money uh that maybe tolkien was talking about but what is it that 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 does to people why is it so addictive yeah i think um well you you just stole my answer i was going to say because it is um addictive and we don't tend to think of that as an addiction we list other things like you say drugs um Mm -hmm. or alcohol or in some cases even sex and 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 other things um greed is on most of paul's vice lists right along with all those other things um and it's not a um net worth. It's not an issue of how much you have or don't have. Poor people are often very greedy. Um, We don't think of it that way because, well, they're just wanting a decent life and they are. But what happens if they attain it? Do they then just want to keep on going? Mm -hmm. Um, John D. Rockefeller a hundred years ago was famous. The, the, um, amazingly wealthy businessman was famous for in the days when being a multimillionaire was filthy rich, uh, being asked, how much Mr. Rockefeller is enough? And his answer was just a little more, just a little more. Mm-hmm. And um, when that's your, your constant attitude, when you're trying to secure the future against every possible calamity. And I think that's what, at least in the back of the mind, drives a lot of people. Um, They hear all of the doomsday predictions, most of which never come true, at least not in this part of the world. But they say, what if it did? Hmm. Well, let's be honest. If the worst of the apocalyptic predictions come true, none of us is going to have enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing that we do now can prepare ourselves for that, except if we get in the habit of sharing with one another, because we're desperately going to need one another then. Mm-hmm. Um, but short of the apocalypse, um, there is such a thing as enough. Mm-hmm. And we have to be honest enough to say we have enough. We have more than enough. Um, if we are praying for more than just our daily bread, mm. we've forgotten the context Jesus gave the Lord's prayer in. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, I even look at first Timothy that says for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I always thought that, that was an interesting phrase, the way that he phrases that he doesn't say, he doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is, and this is another one where it fe- feels a little bit ambiguous. Cause when I talk to people, about money you'll say well the love of money is the root of all evil and the person will be like yeah but i don't love money i just you know i don't love money and it's like well it's hard to convince yourself or other people that you love money what but what is paul saying here when he's saying he's not saying money is the root of all evil he's saying right. the love of money what, and, why and there's a there's a wonderful wonderful context surrounding that passage in first timothy six ten. Mm-hmm especially if you you keep on reading uh, to the end of the chapter, which then brings you to the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, People like to quote 610. I think um, 617 to 19 deserves more press than it gets. Mm -hmm. Command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And then comes a remarkable statement that shows that Paul doesn't see God as promoting asceticism, as saying we should all become hermits uh, or desert dwellers eating just honey and wild locusts like John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. He says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Mm. That's an amazingly reassuring line. But then he goes right back to the point he was making, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Um, If I am thinking more about how I can free up more money to give to the Lord's work, including helping the poor as a central part of that, then I can enjoy some of the good gifts Um, I don't have to have the depression mindset that my mother did being born in 1930, the, within months of the the great stock market crash of 29, she was frugal. She was taught to be frugal. My grandparents were frugal as long as they lived and they were generous. They did great stuff with their money. Um, I don't, um, disparage their model in the least. Um, I think there is a time when, uh, and of course you like to think you found the right balance. I'm sure we haven't, I'm sure we've been seduced. Um, but, uh, with some help from my grandparents' estate that I did nothing to merit, uh, other than inherit it, we have, we have been able in our peak earning years to give 30, 40, 50% of what we make away with, without it being any significant inconvenience. Once we made some fundamental decisions about things we would buy and things that we wouldn't buy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that every American can do that. um, But 
when people say, what do you think of the tithe? Uh, there's a lot of ways I can answer it. But one of them is, for most of us, it's too little. It's not enough to be truly sacrificial in our contemporary context. It's not enough to um, get rid of that love of money. Mm. Um, how do you tell if you're loving money? Um, you can't serve two masters. You'll either serve God or mammon. What, what is most important in your life? All the things that you should be involved with as a believer, including a local Christian congregation, and that your money should support and you work in order to pay the bills and to help be a generous giver? Or is your life, like you talked about, maybe some of your friends, basically about earning money? And if I have time and I'm not too tired and the weather isn't too good or too bad, I might go to church but certainly not every week like we were taught to do, maybe twice every six weeks. And uh, doesn't that make me a good Christian? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. There's an, there's a, there's another verse. I, again, I didn't write this down, but I just thought of it as you were talking. I had heard John Piper give a, give a sermon on this. It feels like he's one of the, one of the pastors that I've heard that kind of hits uh, greed, the topic of greed pretty hard, more so than some other pastors yeah. I've heard. And, um, you know, he obviously discusses the, what money will do to people, kind of the James, James five thing. But then I think somewhere in, in Isaiah, and you might know this better than I, where it talks about, uh, what, what the desire for money does to somebody, N not even just money itself, not just having money, what it does, but what, what does it do when somebody just thinks about money, wants money and desires money all the time? Um, it kind of brings, it kind of makes the gap between the rich and the poor come together because money uh, can be, you know, poor people can desire money too much and rich people can be con completely consumed by, by money. It doesn't, you don't need to be rich right. to, uh, to love money. But uh, I do know what passage I'm talking about in Isaiah. Maybe I'm not, not sure what you're thinking of, but when you talk about Isaiah, what comes to mind, especially in the opening chapters is just this long tirade against idols and how human beings create them. They fashion them out of wood or metal, or today we fashion them uh, in cyberspace or uh, with electronics. And um, they know it's something they've created because they've been involved in creating it. Mm -hmm. And then they turn down and worship and make it be the, the be all and end all. Um, and that's called idolatry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. And so when people, obviously, greed is a sin, and I'd say when, most of Americans do um, are complicit in this in the sin of greed because it's so hard to get a gauge. Um, and when we talk about money, there's obviously a tie to hard work. There's a tie to hey, I've worked hard. I deserve. X amount of money. So how can people, you know, well, how do you think about that dynamic of how hard you work compared to how much you deserve or how much your, your, your time is worth? Well, John Wesley was famous for saying, work as hard as you can, make as much money as you can, give as much of it away as you can. Hmm. Um, yeah. The worker is worth his wage is, uh, 
statement that Jesus said, and Paul quotes it um, in First Timothy, um, hard work is good so long as you are not neglecting um, your obligations to God, to your family, uh, to your neighbors, uh, to be a loving, caring, and accessible person. Mm. Um, but it's it's not how much you make that's the issue. It's what you do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I kind of have, you know, this might be maybe the last question, unless I think of some more, but I have this written down at the end. It says, uh, you know, what are, and I've, you know, we've said that I've said this a couple of times, but I want to stress it a little bit more because I think people can get frustrated when you come, when I come on a podcast and I'll be like, Hey, you know, X, or, you know, like greed is bad. And if you have, if you make more than $150,000, you're sinning, you know, I can't say that. No. It doesn't say that in the Bible anywhere, but that could, you know, you could be sitting if you were making $150,000. You could be sitting if you're making $20,000. There's no there's no real uh, gauge on this in scripture that gives you an objective, here's how much you can and can't make. But what are some questions that Christians can ask themselves uh, about their money, what they love, idol, idols, things like yeah. that? What, what am I doing with that? And um, one of the things that, that my wife and I were uh, – influenced by um, 45 years ago when I first met her. Um, there was a brand new book published hot off the press in 1978 oh. by a man named Ron Sider called Rich Christians in Age of Hunger. And I think it went through about five editions, the last of wow. them published in the early 2000s. And among other things, he talks about what he calls a graduated tithe, which doesn't mean they went to college and got a diploma, um, but graduated in the sense that all of the things being equal, the more income you make, the higher percentage you should challenge yourself to give away. Um, if somebody, uh, I just read this morning that for a single individual, uh, averaging out all the parts of America, uh, the poverty line below which you probably cannot meet some basic needs is $14,500 a year. Mm -hmm. um, for a family of four, it's $30,000. Um, if you're making $30,000 and have four people you're responsible for, including yourself, it may be an inappropriate um, hardship for somebody to say, you need to give 3000 of that to the Lord's work. Hmm. If you're making $300,000 a year and you're only giving 30,000, there's something wrong. Hmm. Um, and, and so we started, um, back in the day, uh, we joked that, uh, our real honeymoon three weeks after we were married was three years in Scotland called doctoral study and uh, we lived on a shoestring and uh, we understood the metaphor of a conduit. Any money we got flowed right through us to the university. Mm. Um, and we said, right, we're going to challenge ourselves, not because we think we have to, but because we want to, mm -hmm. to give 10% away. Mm. Um, we did that for the three years we lived in Aberdeen and then, uh, Hallelujah. God is still good. I got a job. 
um, and have had teaching jobs uh, over the years ever since. And for many of those years, uh, until quite recently, uh, the income continued to inch upward and uh, sometimes uh, higher than uh, any cost of living increases. And so we said whenever that happens, we're going to add a percentage or two points to what we're giving. Mm-hmm. And at that slow incremental stage, um, my biggest problem was, well, I think I'm generous, but I'm not sure it was really a sacrifice. Mm. And then somebody told me you can't give more than 50% and get a tax deduction. And it's like, oh, shoot. Um, but uh, we only topped that a few times. Um, Cider also said that when you get into retirement years and uh, the income shrinks, then it's fully appropriate for that percentage to start to shrink a little bit. But um, yeah, what do you it say? It can to, be done. It can be yeah. done, and it can be joyful. And you, if 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 you can go overseas, that's the biggest help hmm. you can be for yourself or your family. Go to some poor countries. Talk to the typically very joyful Christians there who mm-hmm. don't have stuff to be worried about mm-hmm. and let God speak to you. If you can't travel, then um, go to a poor, go to the Navajo reservation mm-hmm. in uh, New Mexico, uh, where I read the, the, poorest people in all of the United States live. Um, And quite a few of the Native American reservations would house a disproportionate number of the the poorest people and find the Christians and the churches that are part of those communities and just ask them, I'm not here to be your savior. I don't know enough. Mm. Is there something I can do to help? Yeah. And listen to their answers. You'll go home changed. You'll go home changed for the rest of your life. Hmm. So will your kids. Hmm. Yeah. Do, do, do you say anything to college students who obviously aren't working a job or are working, you know, 10, 15 hours a week and might say, I can't give any of this away. I have to get through college. What do you say to them? I say to them, if if you're not bound by a certain percentage um, because I think the tithe is strictly an Old Testament practice, then um, don't feel that you should give some large percentage of money away. That might very well be irresponsible. But don't ever give zero, because once you justify that it's okay to give nothing, you'll graduate and you'll find new reasons to justify giving nothing. Give something, be aware of what percentage it is of your income, be as generous as you can while being responsible, and then make sure that your goal is, once you get a job, to significantly up that percentage of giving. Hmm. Yeah. And I I have to ask this now that you just said this, that, that you see tithing as an Old Testament practice. I don't know where I stand on this. I've, I've obviously, I've heard both sides of this. Uh, I've heard some pastors say, 
that they don't, you know, they don't preach that you have to tithe. Um, and I hear, hear some preach that you, you do have to tithe. You want, can you break that down a little bit more? What your perspective sure. on that is? Um, some things that, that people don't often think about is that, um, if you read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, you will see that the ancient Israelite was required to give three sums of money, um, a tenth of their annual yield. Sometimes it makes more sense to think in terms of crops than cash. Uh, but um, that was to go uh, first for the tabernacle and later for the temple and its um, full-time upkeepers, shall we say, mm -hmm. keepers up. Um, another 10% that helped to fund uh, the seasonal festivals in Jerusalem. And every three years, another 10% that went to a treasury that the priests uh, dispersed to the poor. Mm -hmm. It quickly became obvious that uh, the poor had needs every year. And so that third tithe got prorated and Israelites gave three and a third percent annually. Mm -hmm. The obedient Israelite long before the time of Jesus gave 23 and a third percent of his or her income to uh, the Jewish treasury. So the next time you talk to somebody who says uh, the Old Testament tithe is still in force with straight face and a kind uh, demeanor, just say, Oh, so you're giving 23 and a third percent to the Lord's work, are you? Mm -hmm. They might be, but probably not. Um, what happens when you go to the New Testament? Well, you occasionally see a passage like Matthew 23, 23, where uh, Jesus is berating the Pharisees and some scribes, calling out their hypocrisy for tithing mint, dill, and cumin, these you should have done while not neglecting the weightier matters of the law, love, justice, mercy, and so mm -hmm. on. Oh, so these you shouldn't have neglected. That's New Testament teaching. Yes, but it's teaching to Jewish leaders before Christ's death and resurrection and the inauguration of the new covenant. Mm -hmm. The law was still in force up until... Good Friday. Is, that was their well, responsibility. Right. Once and, you go beyond that, you do not find in Acts and the rest of the New Testament a single command anywhere to tithe, but you find a lot of commands to be generous and to even be sacrificial. And as we've already talked about, you just can't tie that to any fixed percent because it will mean different things to different people given their circumstances and income. Mm -hmm. hmm. That That's interesting. I was, yeah, I was going to just ask, is there any time in the rest of the New Testament, you obviously say there's no, there's no other commands for tithing in the New Testament. So where do people get that from? Where, where do people get the, the, do they just, is it kind of just a, Hey, it's meant it's in the old Testament. We're just going to carry it over kind of grandfather. It, it is. And people go to Malachi and, and they see him say, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse. And uh, if you are in a church context and all you've ever heard is that particular tradition, 
then it's just like um, if you have a, a certain view on baptism and have never been exposed to any of the other Christian alternatives, hmm. you'll probably be convinced that that's the only legitimate possibility. If you've hmm. never been exposed to a differing view on gender roles than your church holds, you may think that's the the only possibility, dare I say, in our divided world. If you've only heard one line about politics, you may think that uh, that's the only possibility. Mm-hmm. And so we we need to deliberately um, become exposed to the full breadth of Christian thinking. Um, it's fascinating to study David Croteau, C-R-O-T-E-A-U, has written some wonderful books on tithing, on the history of the tithing. Um, it was in the late 19th century when a group of private Christian businessmen became convinced that the, the key to the problems of Christianity were to get everybody to give 10%. And they published and distributed pamphlets that somehow managed to reach about three quarters of all the ministers in the United States. Hmm. And from that time onward, there was a noticeable influx and gain in uh, in the practice of tithing. After World War II, you get Oral Roberts and then a whole bunch of others following him that start teaching what's called the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, without wanting to impute the worst possible motives, um, an awful lot of their teaching was tithe to the church and an awful lot of those tithes went to make senior pastors of large prosperity churches, extremely wealthy people, Mm -hmm. Um, does not seem to be something the Bible ever promises to a Christian leader. Um, You're telling me that if I become a pastor, I can't expect to get like a private jet or something like that, (laughs) unfortunately. Gold-plated faucets. Um. <laughs> so you you mentioned in here, I, I didn't prep you for this either. I'm just hearing what you're saying. It's interesting. Things are popping into my head. You, you mentioned, obviously, you want to hear a, a couple multiple sides to a theological question, and that will kind of widen your your mind as, as you think through how you what you believe about Christianity. And I totally agree with that. And that's kind of what I try to do in this podcast. Um and, and with things like, you know, like you mentioned, gender roles or even money and greed and, and things like this, uh, you know, people can be open to a lot of different perspectives. Uh, how exactly do you, do you uh, how do people land on a perspective, though? Because I think in, in a kind of postmodern, in the postmodern era that we live in, it's kind of a virtue to just have a bunch of, you know, I'm open to all these new ideas right. and then never land on something, which I see a lot of young Christians falling into as well, where they'll tell you, hey, you know, here's the egalitarian perspective. Here's the complementarian perspective. Here's Arminianism. Here's Calvinism. Here's a mixture. Here's this. That. And I'm like, OK, but what do you believe? And they're like, well, I don't want to talk about that, you know. Right. And so how do you come to an actual conclusion? Well, there there are things that you can get by with doing that. Uh, if somebody tells me uh, they don't know uh, if they're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, um, you know, one day we'll find out. And there are some theological consequences of your views, but they don't rank among the top 
50 decisions you have to make in life, um, uh, maybe not even among the top 100. And so, yeah, if somebody says, um, I'm not going to let that one bother me, that's fine. It is not possible. Think about it. It is not possible not to take a position on greed. All I need to do is look at your checkbook or in today's world, your online spending, your electronic ledger, and I know what the position is you have already taken, whether you admit it or not. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you been baptized? If so, how? Mm -hmm. There is no way to be agnostic on that. If you haven't been and you're not seriously considering it, you have taken a stance. Mm -hmm. Do you allow women to preach? Do you sit in a church where women can preach? Whether you've ever decided for yourself, the answer to those questions mean you have taken a stand. I'm, I'm sorry. You may want to be postmodern, but you're not. You've already, you've already reverted to modernism. Now, the only question is, did you make a good choice? Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, that seems to be the main, the big Christian question of today, because it seems like the postmodern idea of Christianity or the postmodern invasion of Christianity has not made Christianity more open to ideas, but just has created more doctrines and more rules around Christianity that people can and can't follow. It's it's kind of, it's ironic in a certain way, because the whole idea of postmodernism is to there is no truth. But what ends up happening is that if you don't abide by the unspoken postmodern taboos, you That's get right. you, you get in big trouble, you know, and it's, it's an interesting thing. I was invited uh, two nights ago to speak at the Colorado School of Mines to a Rochelle Christie group that I've spoken to for each of the last three years. And um, talking to the student leader, uh, we each confirmed each other's impressions Christian groups on university campuses these days are hugely populated by people in the hard sciences, the natural Mm. sciences. When I was a student back when the Earth's crust hadn't quite cooled, (laughs) they were populated largely by people in the humanities. Mm. Science had proved that the miraculous didn't exist. Mm. Scientists weren't going to come. About 20 years later, that had entirely reversed itself so that for almost the last 30 years, scientists know there is such a thing as objective truth. They may not always attain it, but it's what they're seeking with every experiment and every practice they conduct. It's only people in the humanities who can be duped into thinking that postmodernism could be true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay. So you're a New Testament scholar, and I don't know how much you've. Obviously, I would assume that you've done a lot of study on uh, uh, like sexuality, uh, homosexuality, sexual yeah. orientation, yeah. all that sort of stuff that seems to be incredibly popular right now. So in, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing an interview with Rosaria Butterfield, and she just wrote a new book. Uh, Five Lives, Lies of Our Anti-Christian mm. Age. Do you know Rosaria Butterfield? I don't. I've heard the name, okay. but I don't know her. No. So she she was a uh, – she got her PhD at Ohio State University. Then she was a teacher at Syracuse. I think she taught uh, lit- literature, some literature with uh, 
women gender studies and she was a practicing lesbian who became a uh, who became a Christian and her kind of perspective of of homosexuality and transgenderism is and I know this is totally off of what we were talking about earlier but I'm interested sure. I have you now so I want to hear what you, what you have to say her perspective is you have to full, fully repent of homosexuality. And I think in, in the church right now, there's kind of this battle. And maybe it, maybe 20 years ago, there was this battle because it feels like it's kind of been solidified that sure. you can be a quote unquote, a gay Christian, or you can be a same sex attracted Christian. Um, and she's kind of saying, well, no, you can't. That upends the gospel. You can't, you know, I couldn't be a, uh, an adulterous Christian. You, you know, you couldn't be a murderous Christian. You can't put a, so that's her argument. What, uh, What's your perspective on this? Well, you, you got to make sure that you're not talking past one another. You got to make sure, sure you know what what the terms mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot personally control um, angry feelings that come to mind if somebody uh, beats me up. Mm-hmm. Um, I can control how I act on those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, there are way too many pretty people in the world, pretty women in the world for any man um, that I've ever met um, not to have improper longings for some of them at times, but I can control what I do with other women. Um, So we have no less than three people on our Denver seminary faculty, two on our Denver campus and one at our Washington D satellite uh, campus, Washington DC satellite campus, who would say um, they are same sex attracted. One of them was married and had two kids uh, for many years, tried everything she knew of in order to be attracted to a man and couldn't and prayed desperately for it. One of them, the one in DC was in a lesbian relationship until she came to Christ and, and then left but has never been attracted to a man. Um, A third one is a a gay man who's been celibate his entire life. Um, Those are things that um, you can't repent of, just like I can't repent of being right-handed and try to make myself become left-handed. But I can certainly decide how I act. So does that, I'm going to push back a little bit. Does that feel, does that seem, um, so when Jesus says, obviously we can't commit adultery, that's wrong. That's the act on the sin. Uh, But he says, you know, anybody who even lusts after a woman is is committing adultery. And so uh, while I agree that obviously there's, there is a step that somebody has to take to go from internal desire to outward action. I absolutely agree. And that those two things are in some capacity uh, different. What what would your response to be be to the idea that um, not not only what is actionable is sin, but also what is desired or uh, even if it comes upon us in a almost in an uncontrolled way, you know, where you have a desire that pops up out of nowhere um, you know, because we're sinful people and we have desires well, all sure. the time. You just answered your own question right there. Um, part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is pointing out how sinful all human beings are. Sure. Um, 
you're referring to uh, 527, Matthew mm-hmm. 527. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully mm-hmm. has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, the first thing you have to do is say, um, looking at a woman with admiration is not the same thing as looking lustfully. That suggests sure. right. uh, an intentional dwelling on a thought or an image. Um, but uh, yeah, if if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Well, that's not meant to be taken literally because the last time I checked, I can lust with my eyes closed. Um <laughs> But it's, it's a way of saying, take drastic action to deal with this. Hmm. Um, do I know at what point um, my thoughts about woman X cross a line? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like uh, I don't know if teenagers do this. Uh, my daughters have long since been teenagers and my grandchildren aren't close enough to being teenagers yet. But we used to always ask the question, how far can you go on a date? <laughs> I, yeah. I suppose people don't ask it anymore because they don't have any limits anymore, even in Christian <laughs> circles. But yeah. we used to ask that question. And the right way for a Christian leader to respond was to say, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking, what can I do to build up my date and develop a wholesome relationship and discover in the long term if this is somebody I'm going to be with uh, permanently? Um, yeah, one question seems to be, what can I get out of this? The other question seems to be, what can I give out of this? What, what, what can I, what can I, how can I participate in the building up of this? This relationship totally, and and those are the question of like how far can you go? You're right. The people aren't asking that anymore. They're just taking it as far as they want to, and it's and it's not good. It's it's obviously bad. I mean, that's a better question. How far can I go is a better question than not asking any question at all. True. But I think you're right that that yeah. What's 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 I, beneficial? I, I also that? think tactically, there's no point at all in trying to debate with someone who claims same-sex attraction, how compelled by that they actually are. Because I have no way of knowing. All I can do is talk about my personal experiences. Um, when I think, yeah, in a way. I I look, mean- when I look at a man who is an usher, um, at our wedding, who professed faith in Christ as a teenager through Campus Crusade, who dated girls, who got married and was unable to consummate the relationship Hmm. because he could not get desire to do Hmm. anything but think about men. Hmm. I have to say, you can't say that's all nurture and no nature. I also agree that it's not all nature. Um, That's been pretty conclusively proven, although some people don't want to admit it. Um, But we don't have to debate that. 
Yes, you've got that attraction. And my vice is this and somebody else's vice is that we just have to realize we are flawed, fallen human beings. What can we control? Whatever we can control, that's what we should be working on. Sure. And and I think, would you say that the, so so I, I, I somewhat disagree, which is totally fine in the (laughs) sense that (laughs) in the sense that I think that what maybe the ultra reformed or hyper conservative Christians are saying in their debate um, against kind of the homosexual orientation side of, of Christianity, the, the people who are, who are focused on the nature-nurture question, okay, is this person oriented this way in an uncontrollable way in a sense that in, in, in an irredeemable way, or are they able to repent of it and then be redeemed back to the creation ordinance put together by God in the, in the beginning? I do think that in some ways it is a it is a gospel question in the sense that we're asking, at least the reason I'm asking the question, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but sure. I'm asking the question because I want to make sure that we're not um, contaminating the gospel and uh, terminology with sin. For instance, I don't go around saying I'm a lusting Christian, but I certainly lust. And I think if somebody came into church and said, hey, like I, I'm i a murderous Christian, like I've murdered people and I can't stop, I think we'd be like, okay, let's figure out where you're, what you're missing here in the gospel. Like what pieces aren't you putting together because you you need to repent of that. And so I think putting a controlling adjective before Christian is kind of a, well, some people might say, well, that's just a, it's semantics. I'd say exactly. It's semantics and Christianity is we, some of these things, it feels like we really got to get them, get them right as Christians so that we can understand the gospel more properly and holistically. Now, are you willing to say you are a heterosexually oriented Christian? Uh, no, because I don't. I don't put my identity in my sexual orientation. In the sense that I think my identity is built up in in Christ. And so when I make a, I think that the over the last, you know, I'm Gen Z. So over my lifetime, especially the more expressive individualist uh, sexually uh, sexual identity has been the primary foundation for which oh, we I think about, about who we are. Yeah. And so I, I try not to put, you know, describe who I am by explaining what my sexual desires are. I try to describe who I am on the basis of who Christ has told me I am. Because oh, I think we mean yeah, absolutely. But if somebody, I don't know, let's, are, are you married? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's assume to you're a woman single. to a woman. Yeah. Let's assume you were single for whatever reason. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 And uh, let's assume there was a guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who was attracted to you sexually, sure. but he was kind enough to come up to you and say, um, Andy, I don't want to presume anything. Mm-hmm. Are you heterosexual or gay? Mm-hmm. Would you not answer him? Oh, I would. I would say I'm heterosexual. Okay, that, yeah. that's my only point. To to use an adjective before Christian does not have to speak about identity. I mm-hmm. am a Swedish hyphen German Christian, and yes, mm-hmm. there are some things that I inherited 
from my dad, who was Swedish, and my mom, who was German. And what I've come to learn about Swedes and Germans as a group hmm. sort of fit rather stereotypically, some, but not all. But I don't go around. There may be weeks go by without my ever consciously thinking, oh, yeah, I'm Swedish. Uh, mm -hmm. That is not a part of my identity. So, yes, I agree entirely with you. We have to um, tear people from this idea that your sexuality is your identity. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But once you've done that or made a good faith effort, there's nothing wrong to say. But if your question is, am I attracted to... Um, Adam or to Eve, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Adam, stay away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, and I, I can hear that. Uh, no, I understand. Yeah. That, I think we agree. That. Yeah. It, the only difference is, is that your, what'd you say? You're uh, what, what, where are you from? Uh, Swedish uh, German, Swedish German, your Swedish German kind of identity is, isn't a sin. Like, whereas a homosexual, like a homosexual or a gay Christian, it, homosexuality or same, you know, that is a sin. Unless we, unless we don't agree on that, that's a sin. I don't know where you, where you stand on that. An orientation is not a sin. It can't be if by orientation you mean something that I did not choose to have or do. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting. Now, it may be the result of my sin nature. Oh, lots of, can you, lots of things are. Yeah. Can you break it that is down? not a conscious sin that I did something I have to repent of. Hmm. Hmm. And I can put one man and one woman before you who I have known for over 60 years who did everything possible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to repent and it did not work. And so, yes, I think the gospel is at stake. The gospel sure. is at stake because you don't tell people to do something they cannot do. Interesting. So, uh, and that God, for whatever reason, has chosen not to make possible for them to do. That is yeah. a false gospel. Can you break down the, for people listening who might not know, the difference between sin and sin? Uh, you said sin, nature. Original sin, sin means that we are corrupt from the womb. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, sin, you know, choosing to sin. My, uh, my firstborn daughter, who is wonderfully compliant, gave me a, uh, a crisis. I joke about it. A theological crisis for the first three months of her life. Uh, I just could not see anything in her that wasn't related. If she cried or acted out, that wasn't related to a genuine human need like food or sleep or drink or changing. The first identifiable English word I ever heard her utter. Mine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I knew the doctrine of original sin was true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we're, we have a nine month old right now and he can't really talk, but you can start to see, you know, some of the things where, you know, He'll just 
he'll scream and cry when he needs to go to bed and he knows what time is bedtime at this age. And obviously he needs attention and things like that. So we'll go and pick him up and he'll immediately stop crying and then we'll put him back down and then we'll leave and then he'll start crying. And at at a certain point, I'm like, okay, I think he knows what we're doing, what's happening here. He just wants to get out of bed. He doesn't necessarily need our attention anymore. He needs to sleep because he's tired and you can start to see it at at, at very early ages. I I watched it with my um, first grandchild, I love my daughter, the same compliant daughter. Mm-hmm. I love her dearly. She and her husband are trying to be extremely consistent about their their parenting mm-hmm. methods. Mm-hmm. But there was stuff that he did in his late ones and early twos that I could watch and know from experience. The only reason he did it was because he had been told not to do it. and watching my daughter try to justify his behavior. Well, maybe it was because of this, or maybe it was, I said, no, (laughs) if you do not stop this now, you are in for much worse later. She didn't. And she was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that's good. It's good that there was discipline because there's a lot of parents who don't discipline anymore. And that's, and they don't say no. But, But my point is she didn't do enough of it. So there was, problems yeah. later on now totally. not like not anything like some people that you see um, yeah no, I get what you're saying. And I, I honestly, like we didn't, for people at home listening, we didn't plan to talk about this stuff. I <laughs> thought it was interesting. Uh, and I know it's obviously been an hour and, and uh, we're going over time, but um, you know, it's an inter- it's interesting for me to get the perspectives that you've been studying the new Testament and the question of sexuality and orientation and sexual sin that has been kind of at the forefront of, oh, yeah. of thought right oh, now, yeah. because there's a lot of talk around you know, with transgenderism and all these things that, that it seems to be people are interested in hearing, okay, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? And I think different theologians, different people kind of land at different places, but right hearing different perspectives is always important. So I do appreciate you. And the other issue that I think we don't take into consideration enough is Peter talks repeatedly in first Peter two and three about having a winsome attitude towards society so that people will say on the day of judgment, they will glorify God. And maybe even as believers, if something is not utterly unambiguously clear in scripture and we go beyond scripture and as a result of the given culture that we're in at a given time, keep people out of the kingdom for that reason. Mm-hmm. What have we done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have kept a lot of people out of the kingdom because of the extreme. And by we, I don't mean you and me. I mean, the conservative Christian movement in all its extremes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just First Baptist Westboro, Kansas, um, because of what we have said about homosexual people. Um, we need to be the people who they recognize we love more than anyone else in the world loves them. Mm-hmm. And we care so much, we don't want to leave them where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's not 
the feet we've put forward and the demeanor that we've had. And I don't believe, given the state of knowledge where we are now, and something could change it later, that that you can sweep same-sex orientation to the extent that it is something someone has not chosen and require people somehow to think they can change from it. There may be some, there have been some, a small number who have changed, but that probably suggests that what they were starting from wasn't the identical experience that some other people have started from. So you, we don't want to compromise the gospel, but we don't want to put more on the gospel than is really there mm-hmm. and keep people out as a result. And that's the tightrope act we have to walk. And would you say that, I, and I know the ultra conservatives that you're talking about that are like almost antagonistic in their uh, approach to this conversation. So I'm not talking about those people. I think those people need to relax, but um, <laughs> maybe even repent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree right. with that. Um, so, but like, you know, somebody like me who I certainly lean on the, on the perspective and I'm leaning in this direction. So I, I'm not going to come out here and say to everybody that this is exactly where I land, but I lean in, in the direction of that. I do think it is possible to repent for, from an orientation that, that, and I'm leaning in that direction. So I know that you, I know what you just said and it don't, you don't, nothing offends me. I, I it's totally fine. <laughs> uh, I, I want to hear different yeah. ideas. Um, because, uh, you know, for, for a bunch of different reasons, but would you say that it's possible for those, somebody who leans in that direction, um, or not even leans somebody who lands in that, in that place that says, Hey, I think you actually have to repent of the sexual orientation. You wouldn't say that that person isn't love, being loving, would you, or, or how would you? Well, it depends on how you communicate that to somebody else. Sure. Um, I would just say it's not something you lead with. Yeah. Tom Schreiner, who's quite conservative, Southern Baptist Seminary, wrote a marvelous theology of the New Testament uh, years ago, and he put predestination in one of the last chapters. And was about, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> and he said, I did this deliberately because predestination is not something yeah. you explain to somebody before they become a Christian. Oh, yeah. It makes right. no sense at all. Mm-hmm. It's something you can begin to understand a little bit retrospectively after mm-hmm. years of Christian experience. And I thought, bingo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there is anything that such a person has to repent of, I would say that would be almost the last thing you would ever tell them. You would want them to be a believer first. You would want them to be willing to repent of the things they can control and they can choose. You would want to love them. You would want to incorporate them in the family of God. You would want to build the best possible relationship with them. And then in uh, a quiet, private moment, someday say, okay, Joe, I got a really, really hard question to ask you. Mm Mm-hmm. Forgive right. me if it's offensive. Um, I won't. I won't uh, keep at you with it. But do you think? Do you think there's anything more there hmm. that you could repent of that's still under your control? Just, just curious. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And don't forsake, you know, conviction and things like that, obviously. You know, there's it's, it's a fine line. And that's, man, that seems to be like the, what you're trying to figure out as a, as a young Christian growing yeah. up. The fine line between, for somebody like me who just wants to, highly disagreeable, wants to <laughs> kind of push back at everything. I'm like, yeah, the, the fine line is. That makes you a good talk show host. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't, but for, for somebody like me, I'm like, okay. I really just want to push hard on, on the things that need to be pushed hard. You know, if you're struggling with something, let's get, let's get, you know, let's get this thing figured out. And if you're convicted about something, you need to absolutely talk about it. But there's also, that's, you know, that's the, that can totally throw people off and totally get people to be like, okay, this guy's actually just antagonistic and a jerk, which isn't generally speaking, it's not my intention, but I can certainly come off that way because of, I don't know, just personality and stuff like that. So there is this fine line between hold true to convictions and figure out what you believe is true um, and figure out how to talk to other people about that without being completely repulsive. And that's those are that's a very difficult thing to figure out. But we got to do in it. Fact, in fact, challenge yourself to talk to people without being at all repulsive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least you personally. Yeah. Don't be repulsive. But if, if you have ideas... Maybe you don't agree with this, but if you have ideas that they find to be repulsive, make sure that they find the idea repulsive, not not the way in which you're talking about them right. and being antagonistic right. about them. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. No, and I, that's great. And I, I love I love this conversation. And maybe in the future we can have uh, we can go even more in depth on on something sure. like this. Um, and but I, I already wanna... know that you're not repulsive because you're not like these sports broadcasters where <laughs> nobody can ever finish a sentence and the other one interrupts and mm-hmm. gives the other side and they just sound like they're arguing. Look, if you were to say in this podcast that you think LeBron is better than Jordan, I probably would would become like that. Um, but you know, I have to. I don't. I'm from Northern Illinois. I exalted in the six years of Chicago Bulls champions. Um, Let's go. I don't think I would ever say that. Okay. Good. 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 Then we. Then you're right. Yeah. No, I. I do appreciate it. Um, now, so, yeah, if you just, asked me this year who is worse, yeah. the Bears or the Broncos, that would be a harder one to answer. That's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> a question on everyone's mind, right? Uh, oh, man. But then, um, since you're north of the border, you may be a Packers fan. No, I'm actually a Bengals fan, but I did grow up in I Wisconsin. I like the Bengals too, but I bet for a reason that you would never guess. Why? Because the only graduate of my small Division three college, Augustana College in Rock oh. Island, Illinois, to mm-hmm. ever make the pros big, played for the Bengals. Who was it? He would have been in the Hall of Fame if it hadn't been for Joe Montana. Okay. Kenny Anderson. <laughs> Kenny Anderson, okay. Long-time I- all-star quarterback for the... Bengals made wow. it to the Super Bowl, but lost to Joe Montana. It is. You always, sometimes you get these D3 guys. There's a guy, Terry Porter, who played at Stevens Point, and he went to the NBA, and he was good. I mean, he played point guard. You get some of these guys who play D3 who, I don't know what happens. They just end up, you know, it's it's once in a while, but it's very cool when it happens. I, I agonized. I mean, obviously nowhere nearly as much as he did, but. I just stared at that guy who who committed the foul against the Chiefs and sat on the bench and just had his head in his hands mm-hmm. crying for the longest time going, is he thinking about taking his life? I mean, mm-hmm. this is 
just, oh, I empathize with him so much. Yeah. I hate yeah. the Chiefs. I love the Bengals. The Bengals deserve. But then they brag too much in advance of it. You don't do that. You don't yeah. flip off an opponent. Come on, right. guys. As much as it, it might be tempting, but you just got to <laughs> gotta hold it in. Yeah, the Bengals have started rough this year, too. I mean, coming up. But, but they two look years good ago. in their third game. Yeah, it looked decent. Joe Burrow seems like he's struggling a bit, but it will hopefully, you know, I have Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and Joe Mixon on my fantasy football team, thinking that they're all going to score me a bunch of points. And these the first two weeks, it was like <laughs> I didn't you get give any anybody a record breaking contract, and that pretty much guarantees they'll look mediocre for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right before contract signing, they'll they'll play amazing, and then after they get that big one, they kind of you know relax a little bit and but my uh, younger daughter lived in philadelphia for eight years so wow. i may wind up following the eagles more than any other contender this year they make it they could make it there they can make it to the super bowl but i don't know if they can win it they always they made it last year right and they and they lost or was that two years ago two years ago yeah it depends on depends on who they play yeah that's true. I never thought the Nuggets could beat the Celtics, but then they got yeah. the Heat instead. <laughs> yeah. But Jokic is – I love watching He's Jokic. unreal. He's going to be one of these guys Just that everybody – throw the ball up any direction and watch mm-hmm. it go in. <laughs> and he plays He plays so weird. He, he's, just, he's not like a normal basketball player. He's just this – big he's just huge is he serbian right something like that he's just huge he just yeah. runs over and he plays like kind of like a point guard he could pass i think he averaged like eight assists a game and he can last. shoot three pointers and yeah it's, yeah <laughs> love watching him yeah i love i grew up loving uh carmelo anthony on the nuggets oh, so yeah. that was those years were fun although they could never they never get a won. championship yeah but yeah well craig it was great to do this podcast Good. and Maybe in the future we could do more. Uh, so people, uh, you're going to stop recording now? Well, I was gonna say, <laughs> for people who want to uh, hear maybe more more of you, is there anywhere they could, they could find you? Or have you written any books or anything like that that people can, can read? Oh, about 30. Yeah, just about go 30. to Google. <laughs> Great. <laughs> awesome. Well, Craig, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. And Thank if you. you like this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends and give us a five-star rating. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.